0: Now, I do recognize that this is not a text from the Gospels. It's not a traditional Easter uh, text for uh, Easter Sunday. Um, Nor is the book of Acts a go-to book to speak about the resurrection traditionally. But all throughout the book of Acts, the apostles taught and ministered in the name of the risen Jesus. And this just wasn't part of their message. It was integral to their message as the early church began, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So much so that the religious leaders became greatly annoyed at the apostles because, as Luke tells us in Acts 4, they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. To the point that not only did it bring annoyance to the religious leaders, Peter and John, the men who were primarily preaching at that particular moment, were eventually held in custody by the religious authorities. Eventually, some of them were even thrown into jail. And then even after that, some of them were killed because of their preaching concerning Jesus being the resurrected one. So not only is their message built upon the resurrection, but their very lives. It consumes everything about them. Everything they did after Jesus ascended, with what we see in Acts chapter 1, after he has ascended into heaven, is confirmed in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So to speak about resurrection, uh, except out, I guess outside of, a, of a Easter Sunday, to speak about resurrection is strange for us. I am sure that is not a common conversation that you are having at your office or at school or wherever you might go during the week and it's not something we're often talking about someone rising from the dead i don't think any of you have ever experienced resurrection yourself personally at least i haven't heard about that yet and if i if you have you probably need to tell us about it or you you've never seen anybody physically resurrected from the dead well the same was true for the apostles And yet here you have one of the most unlikely of all characters who does speak of the resurrection, and he does so with confidence. So by this point in Acts, chapter 13, roughly 20 years have passed since Jesus' death and resurrection. And a lot happens in 20 years. So think back 20 years ago in your own life right now. Some of you didn't even exist yet, Some of you were just little babies. And now look at you. You're here. 20 years ago, I was 23 years old. I was one year into marriage, and I had one kid. Now I'm 43, if you can do the math. I'm 43, almost 21 years into marriage, and have five kids. A lot happens in 20 years. So, 20 years prior for Paul... His name was Saul. He was a devout Jew. He was the best Jew anyone could ever think of. And he was hell-bent against Christianity and Christians. He was a persecutor of the church. And now, 20 years later, Paul has been radically saved by Jesus and is now, arguably, one of the most influential figures in the early church and in our text today he gives testimony to the resurrection so this is paul paul was not an eyewitness at least as far as we know to the events of jesus's life as the disciples were they were they were right there with jesus during his life uh paul wasn't a a physical eyewitness of jesus's death nor was he a physical eyewitness to the resurrection And still he makes an argument for the life-transforming power of it. So one of the main ideas I want you to walk away with uh, today is that the resurrection is not primarily a static event that we only acknowledge every spring. Rather, the resurrection is the true truth of God becoming human to transform reality, to turn the world right side up. So it's not something we should only be conscious of once a year. It should be a truth we carry with us always. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 6, that that just as we are united to Christ in his death, we are to be united to Christ in his resurrection as well. So now, if, if, if the resurrection is something that troubles you, or you don't think much of it, let me pose a question for you to consider as we move through the sermon this morning. And the question is this, what would have to change for you if the resurrection is true? What in your life would have to change if the resurrection is true? And, if you are convinced already, maybe you need to ask yourself this morning, what still needs to change in my life because the resurrection is true? Have I allowed it to consume all of life? Or are there still some areas that I have not given over to it? Well, this is what Paul is doing for his audience and his later readers as well. He is saying to a group of unbelievers, at least unbelievers in the resurrection of Jesus uh, what changes if it is true and then and then goes on to lay it all out for them in a clear and logical manner so he was saying to this group of Jews this the resurrection of Jesus is true and here is what has to change because it is so and he lays it out for them in this clear and logical way because if the resurrection is true Everything changes. Everything changes. Everything about this world changes. So three truths that Paul presents to make his case about the resurrection. One is God's initiative of grace. Two is God's fulfillment of grace. And then three is God's appeal to grace through Paul. So first, God's initiative of grace in verses 16 through 25. So in order to understand the work of Jesus in his resurrection, so, so that we don't just see it as this static event that we will hear right now in this next hour, and then we will walk out of here and go to lunch with, with family, and then forget all, of about, uh, all about it tomorrow, we have to understand the historical context in which it all takes place. So in verses 16 through 22, Paul takes us back in history to show that God's initiative of grace uh, didn't begin at the New Testament. His initiative of grace doesn't begin at Jesus' birth. God's initiative of grace doesn't begin at the cross, and it doesn't begin at the empty tomb. His emphasis here, Paul's emphasis here, is for his hearers to hear that God's initiative of grace started way before any of this occurred. So he takes us back over a 500-year period, starting with the Exodus, then all the way to the reign of King David to show us this. Look at verses 16 through 22 again. So Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, "'Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. "'The God of this people Israel chose our fathers "'and made the people great during their stay "'in the land of Egypt. "'And with with uplifted arm he led them out of it. "'And for about 40 years he put up with them "'in the wilderness. "'And after destroying seven nations "'in the land of Canaan, "'he gave them their land as an inheritance. "'All this took about 450 years.'" And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. So Paul paints a picture using the scriptures, using history to detail the logic of this man, Jesus. He immerses his Jewish brothers in the story of Jesus because to understand who Jesus is and what he's accomplished in his person and in his work, you have to enter the story of Jesus. So verse 15 tells us that Paul is in the synagogue doing this. Paul has been asked by the synagogue leaders to share a word of testimony from the scriptures that have just been read out loud in the synagogue. And this means that he is amongst men who knew the scriptures well. They did this every Sabbath day. They knew the story of God. And they knew that the story of God was moving toward a Messiah. They knew that was to take place. They just weren't convinced that Jesus was that Messiah. So Paul takes this opportunity to be their tour guide of grace, pointing them to the progress of redemption that is laid out for them in the law and in the prophets, which is the Old Testament for us. And it reaches, it reaches its climax at this man, Jesus, who rises from the dead. So he makes clear in these verses uh, that this is all God's initiative not man's, that it is God's hand that is guiding history and that it is God who is the one pointing to Jesus the entire time. So if you'll notice in in that first part of our text, God is the subject of nearly all the verbs that Paul uses. God chose our fathers. God made the people great in Egypt. God led them out of Egypt. God put up with them, which is, I love that one. God put up with them. God overthrew seven nations, and God gave the land to his people. And after this settlement of the land, God gave them judges to rule over them. And eventually he gave them their first king, Saul, when they asked for a king. And then after removing Saul, who was a terrible king, God gave them David as a king, a man after God's own heart. And then from David, Paul jumps straight to the promised Savior, Jesus, who was a descendant of David. It's almost as if Paul can't wait to show his brothers this clear connection in biblical history. Now, it's interesting to note that Paul uh, begins his survey of the Old Testament with Exodus and not in the story of Genesis. Genesis. But within Exodus lies the central event of the Old Testament, which is why Paul chooses it it for this particular sermon that he is preaching. The central event of the Old Testament is the Passover. And this is why Paul begins here. Because within the Passover, you have God marking a people for himself with blood and then rescuing them From an oppressor that has enslaved them. And so, what we see in Paul's use of this first story from the Old Testament is him preparing his audience for the role of the resurrection of Jesus. And he does this first with the use of the verb uplifted or or lift up or exalted in verse 17 to speak of God's exaltation, or you could say, God's resurrection of his people in Egypt. Because this same verb is used throughout the book of Acts to refer to the exaltation or the resurrection of Jesus. So Paul is priming the pump for his listeners concerning the resurrection by giving them a biblical theology of resurrection starting in the book of Exodus. And so the second way that he does this, even more explicitly, is in verse 22 when he refers to David being raised up as king, which anticipates the raising up of Jesus from the dead to be our king, which is why Paul jumps so quickly from David to Jesus in verse 23. Of this man's offspring, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior Jesus as he promised. So the use of this verb associates David more closely with Jesus who is his offspring, which is where Paul gives the third way he readies his audience for the reality and significance of the resurrection in verse 23, with the use of the phrase that is most likely translated in your Bible as either God has brought Jesus. Or as, or as he promised, or God has led Jesus as he promised. That's probably what your translation says. But no, and it's not, that's not wrong, just by the way. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, a Greek scholar, so I'm not going to ask you to change that in your Bible, although you could. Um, but nowhere else in the book of Acts does Luke write in that manner. Luke never says God brought or God led Jesus. He never uses that language. But he does use over and over and over again in the book of Acts, God raised Jesus. So what makes more sense contextually, both both within our text and as in the book of Acts as a whole, would be to translate this as God has raised Jesus as he promised. Which is critical to understand because of the direction Paul is heading in the coming verses that deal specifically with the resurrection and its implications for all of life. So John the Baptist is mentioned very briefly here, but just like John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus... Paul prepares the way for his audience to grasp the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. So John was saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul is saying, Behold the risen Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world. Which brings us to our second point, the fulfillment of God's grace, because the initiative of God's grace is not fulfilled in King David, as many liked to believe then, but has now been fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ. Look at verse 26. Paul says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, this is the second time he's addressing them, getting their attention, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation, which he's referring to the resurrection of Jesus there. So again, Paul is directly addressing his audience by calling them uh, brothers and sons of Abraham and those who fear God to listen to what he has to say. He, he's gotten their attention with the telling, uh, telling the story of Israel, the history, and now he tells the story of Jesus in the exact same way he told the story of Israel. And he does this. And, and, and as he does this, he builds upon the message he's proclaiming as he moves to the central focus of his sermon, which is the resurrection. So four times Paul mentions the, the event of the resurrection in these next nine verses. Because he wants his audience to understand what is being said about the resurrection of Jesus from the Scriptures. Not just something that Paul has pulled out of thin air. But this is from the scriptures promised to them. So in the first mention, in verses 27 through 30, he bridges the gap between his audience and the resurrection of Jesus by tying Jesus' death to his first listeners and then giving God the credit for his resurrection. So look at verses 27 through 30 again. So, Paul is saying this to Jews. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. So what Paul is saying there is, the Bible is read every Sabbath. And every Sabbath, someone gets up and tries to explain it to you, and you have missed what the Bible has been saying about this man, Jesus. So Paul is making clear what it says and he's also making clear what their role in Jesus' death is. Because Paul says, you condemned him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. So Paul boldly says to his listeners. Now remember, these people asked Paul to speak. Now I'm sure they're probably regretting that they have asked Paul to speak because he is saying to his listeners, you fulfilled the utterances of the prophets that you didn't understand, the scriptures you read every Sabbath, you fulfilled them by condemning Jesus to death. But God raised him from the dead. even in in your condemning him to death, even in your planning for his death, you couldn't do it. You couldn't succeed because God has raised him. So this is Paul's kind of subtle way of bridging the gap. You killed Jesus, but God raised him back to life. The second way he does this is by using the second through the fourth time that he mentions the resurrection uh, is by bringing King David back into the mix here in verses 33 through 37. And he does this to show that King David was not the king they were looking for. Why? Well, because King David, while a good and godly king, a man after God's own heart, died and was laid with his fathers, who were also dead. And his body saw corruption, which means it is rotting in the grave. So Paul makes this connection between David and Jesus by quoting three Old Testament passages. First, from Psalm 2-7, which says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And this is in reference to the blessings of the Davidic kingdom that come by the means of the resurrection of David's son, King Jesus. So, uh, as the people, as the Jewish people read this text, all they could understand in that moment was that this was a blessing that we receive because we are part of the kingdom of David. But Paul is kind of taking it a step further and saying, no, what this text truly means is that the blessings of the Davidic kingdom come by the means of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is your blessing. The second passage comes from Isaiah 55, 3, which says, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So this verse highlights a key component concerning the resurrection, which is the provision of an everlasting rule. This, this, that means it's a never-ending rule. That is, it's an, an eternal rule. It will never stop. So this is the provision of an everlasting rule by an everlasting king who will deliver his people to everlasting life. And the resurrection is what guarantees this promise from Isaiah. And then the the third text Paul uses is Psalm 16.10 that says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. So Paul is using using logic here with his audience um, because King David obviously... Uh, saw corruption. So, this is the moment, along with verses 36 and 37, that Paul sort of uh, pulls apart David and Jesus. Because saying your Holy One will not see corruption is to say the Holy One is not King David who did see corruption, but it's King Jesus. John Stott says in his commentary on this, he said, David died. David was buried and David decayed. But the son of David, whom God resurrected, did not see decay, did not see corruption of his body. And this is a verifiable fact by some of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection who went to the tomb and to, expecting to find a dead body, but they find the tomb, uh, tomb open and no one there. And after hanging around for a bit, Jesus appears to them as a living man. He's not a decomposing corpse. There is no smell of death coming out of the tomb, and he's not something that you would see on Walking Dead or something like that either. As Paul says in verse 37, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So having brought history and Scripture together, and shown how what God foretold in Scripture um, he has fulfilled in Jesus' death and resurrection. We now come to our final point, which is God's appeal through Paul to grace in verses 38 through 41. So again, Paul for the third time addresses his audience in a personal way, calling them brothers. And and he's appealing to them in this way by calling them brothers. Um, He's appealing to them in this way because he wants them to come to belief in the risen Christ. Paul is not here trying to win an argument. Paul is not here trying to prove his Jewish brothers wrong. That's not his intentions here. He is simply unpacking unpacking the practical relevance of, of Jesus' resurrection for his audience. And so he speaks these beautiful words of promise in verses 38 through 39. And these may stand out to some of the ladies who've been in the Galatians Bible study this spring. But he says these words to his brothers. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the the law of Moses. So here are words of hope for Paul's audience. Here are words of freedom, even. Words that speak the very clear-cut message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how to respond to it. So Paul compares the two realities they must wrestle with as, as well. The reality of being freed from their oppressor, which is sin, and the reality that the law of Moses can never do this for them. So he targets right where they are and says, what you are doing doesn't work. What you are doing will never work. You will never gain acceptance with God through your good works. You will never gain acceptance with God through a lack of of bad deeds and bad things that you don't do or try to avoid. It will never work. So I wonder what you're doing currently to earn your salvation. I'm aware that that you may not be trying to earn your way into heaven because uh, you don't believe there to be a heaven or a hell, but you are trying to do something. You are trying to do something. It might be some form of pop psychology or self-help that says to be the best version of yourself while you're here on this earth. Or as the Netflix series, Afterlife, uh, promotes making life on earth while you're here good for yourself Good for those you love and good for those you leave behind because this life is all there is. But can I appeal to you as Paul does to his audience? I mean, you're here on Easter, so you knew, you knew this was going to happen. This is Easter Sunday. I mean, what else would you think would happen on Easter Sunday but an appeal to the gospel? But let me appeal to you and Paul, uh, the way Paul did Through this man, Jesus, is the forgiveness of sins that is proclaimed to you. And by him, by Jesus, everyone, no exceptions to that, everyone who believes is truly free from everything which you could not be freed from with the things that you are currently doing to earn your salvation. Whatever that might look like. Those things aren't working, and they never will. They might seem like they're working now. You might be sitting there and saying, no, I, I'm, my life is pretty good. I have money in the bank. I have new things. I can do whatever I want. I have a great marriage. I have great kids. All of those things, everything is working for me. They might be working for you now, but eventually they will come up short. Eventually they will fail you because they cannot be your savior. Only Jesus can fill that role. So come to Christ, who the one who conquered death so that you could have true life in him. So Paul offers those words of promise to his brothers, but he also offers a word of warning to them as well in verses 40 through 41. Quoting from Habakkuk here, another Old Testament text, he says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So the simple warning that Paul is giving here is, to, is, to, is, to, is not to scoff or not to ridicule, God's resurrection work. Because that's a temptation, isn't it? Especially in a culture that finds everything else really easy to accept. That a, that a man born a man is, is, can be a woman or vice versa or anything. We, we find that very easy to accept. But when it comes to a man rising from the dead, absolutely not. That is crazy. But for Paul, everything hinges on the resurrection. You have to understand, Paul, I, I don't know who the most successful person in the room is, but think about the most successful person you know, and that might be yourself. You might have the pedigree, the, the family background, you might have the riches and the wealth and, and, and the great degree from a great university, and you think, I am everything. That was Paul. Before he came to know Jesus, Paul was everything. He was the man. He was the one that you aspired to be like in a secular culture. And Paul knew it. And so for Paul, everything hinges on the resurrection. He has given up everything because he believes the resurrection to be true. So in his first letter to the Corinthian church, Paul says this. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those, who, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied, Paul says. You see, Paul understands that everything is riding on the resurrection of Jesus. If it is not true, we won't be resurrected. Our faith is in vain. We misrepresent God, and we are, as Christ followers, most to be pitied because we've believed a lie. And still Paul moves forward. He moves forward in faith because he knows the message to be true, because the scriptures say it is true. And they've been pointing to it all along. All the way from the book of Genesis, all the way into the Gospels, the Scriptures have been pointing to the death and resurrection of Jesus, our Messiah. But not only this, for Paul, believes it to be true from the Scriptures, Paul also, earlier in that text in in 1 Corinthians that I just read, Paul also, also goes back and points to eyewitnesses that have seen Jesus after the resurrection. He says 500 people saw him at once. And these other people he lists out, all of them saw this to be true. And then even Paul had an experience of the resurrection when Jesus saves him on the road to Damascus. So Paul says he knows it to be true because he has seen it in that way. And this changed everything about him. Well, because the implications of the resurrection are so great... And because I have said a lot here over the past half hour, I want us to do something a little different this morning, and that is to sit in silence for a moment as we close. A lot has been said, and I want to give us some time to ponder the things that we have heard today. So one of the ways in which I, when, I'm, when I have the opportunity to sit where you sit and listen to someone preach, is I don't necessarily... Um, take the whole, you can look at the sermon in this way. The sermon is this great feast. It's a great feast. But you can't eat every morsel of that great feast. You'll get sick, you know. Um, But you can take one or two or maybe even three morsels from it and really be fed and really be nourished. That happens every time someone preaches the scriptures. So what I want you to do now is to close your eyes. Nothing else is gonna happen. But I want you to sit in silence and I want to give you some prompts for you to think about as you do that. So, considering all the words you just heard today concerning the resurrection of Jesus, what has God drawn your attention to? And maybe even asking him what he would have you do with that which he has brought to your mind. (coughs) Paul is clear that you have two choices. To believe in the resurrection of Jesus or to scoff at the resurrection of Jesus, indifference is not an option. So, thinking about this question or thinking about these options, which will you choose today? God in heaven, you have worked the greatest work known to humanity in raising Jesus from the dead. And because you have done this, we can be sure, as we trust and hope in Christ, that our own resurrection is secure as well. In the name of the resurrected one, our risen King Jesus, we pray all of these things. Amen. Please stand as we uh, continue.